tonight. One of them is, what is a fleece? The second one is, should we put out a fleece so that we know what choice pleases God? So what is it, literally or figuratively, and is it something that we should do to find out what God wants us to do? When I was probably 10 or 11 years old, I was at a homeschool convention. We had a fellow get up to speak to us, and he started out by telling us some different things, and his topic, if I remember correctly, was something along the lines of knowing God's will. So he's speaking to a bunch of kids, soon to be teenagers, soon to be making decisions about work and school and getting married and all those sorts of things. So he wanted to give us some advice on how to know what God wanted us to do. And so he told us the story of how he met his wife. And this is how he met his wife. He was sitting in the cafeteria, and he said, I want to get married. He said, the next woman that walks through that door, she's the one for me. Do you learn more from a good example or a bad one? I think it depends. But in this case, it's something that I definitely remembered. Because I listened to him, and I thought, that's kind of a scary way to figure out what I'm going to do next for a whole variety of reasons. Tonight I want us to look at a bad example and see how not to find God's will for our lives. What is God's will? There's many different ways that we could look at this. Some of the songs that we're singing tonight talked about how God is working through history. He's going to defeat the nations that oppose him, all of those sorts of things. Broadly speaking, that's God's will. But the part that I want us to focus on tonight is, how do I know what God has told me to do? How do I know what God wants me to do in a specific circumstance? So there's many books written on the subject and a lot of different ideas that people will say, here's how you figure it out. But some of the main ways that people use to try to figure out what God wants are looking for open doors or evaluating circumstances. So you say, is there an opportunity here? Okay, I'm going to go for it. Another one is watching results. Did that work last time? I'm going to do it again. Did it not work? I'm not going to do it. Another would be a feeling of peace. Do I feel confident about doing this? Do I feel okay with doing it? Then it must be the thing that I need to do. And then the fourth one that we're going to look at tonight is making God give you a sign. God, I don't know if I should do this. Do something. Write it in the sky. Tell me what I'm supposed to do specifically. And that last one is what we're going to focus on tonight. And just to be clear, and we'll talk about how this all connects later on, not all of those that I just listed off are necessarily bad, but they can't be the first step. And so we'll talk more about that a little bit later. The last idea, making God give you a sign, is what we're going to talk about tonight. And sometimes people use this phrase when making a decision. They'll say, I'm putting out a fleece. And that refers to our passage tonight. So Judges chapter 6. Let me just give you a little bit of background, sort of summarize verses 1 to 10. The people of Israel in the time of the judges were in a horrible cycle. They would follow after idols. God would punish them for following after idols and let some nation defeat them in battle, take advantage of them, these sorts of things. After some time of being oppressed by these surrounding nations, the people of Israel would get tired of it, and they'd say, God, help us. And God in his kindness would send a deliverer called a judge, 
and then he would rule over the people after he defeated whatever the enemy was, and then sometimes as soon as he died, sometimes before he died, sometimes shortly after he died, they would go back to doing the same thing, practicing idolatry all over again. And in this case, they uh, had an undisturbed land, chapter 5, verse 31, for 40 years. This was after Deborah and Barak. Then they disobeyed God again, and God let the Midianites oppress them. And um, in this character, in this story, our main character is a man named Gideon. And we find him hiding from the Midianites, threshing out wheat in the wine press, not in the place where you'd normally be harvesting wheat. And uh, this is where I want us to begin in verse 11. Gideon demonstrates, I think, for us at least three reasons why we should not follow his example. The first reason why we shouldn't follow Gideon's example is that he doubted God's word. So what would I say to you in connection with that? Don't doubt God's word. We see this in verses 11 through 24. The first thing we see Gideon doing is blaming God for his own sinfulness or that of the people. We see this in the first few verses. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, different word than the one you might be familiar with, which belonged to Joash the Abiazrite, as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press in order to save it from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Then Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. Asking a question to understand something that God is doing is not inherently bad. But what tends to happen is we push it past the point of trying to understand something and we start questioning something about God's character. For example, in the story of Job, he hadn't sinned. His friend's explanation of why he had all these bad things coming into his life wasn't right. It wasn't because of his sin. But then toward the end of Job, he starts to get to a point where he starts to say, God, you don't have any right to treat me this way. And then you have all those things at the end of Job where God rebukes him and says, but I'm the creator and, and I, don't have, I don't have to answer to you and those sorts of things. And I have the sense, based on what we learn later of Gideon, that Gideon is not necessarily saying this to say, God, I want to understand why this has happened. He's saying, where are you? We need help here. And the irony is, he says that right after the angel of the Lord says, the Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. So that should have been a hint to him. Hey, God is about to do something about this problem, but instead of recognizing that, he is just questioning it. Having a difficult time after we've been sinning shouldn't be a surprise to us. And so in that respect, Gideon's question didn't have a good, a good basis underlying it because if the people of Israel were sinning, what should they expect God would do? He wasn't going to let them get away with it. He was going to punish them. He had promised that in a number of places before through Moses and Joshua and others and said, I'm going to punish you if you don't follow me. And so Gideon should not have been surprised that they were going through a difficult time. And yet we see that God is faithful even when we're not. He sends a prophet in verses 7 through 10 that we didn't read, but the prophet said, 
This is why this is going on. Now, whether Gideon had heard that message or whether he was not present when it was being spoken, but at least some of the Israelites knew through this prophet, this is what is going on. This is why you're having this trouble. So God didn't have to give them that warning. He didn't have to give them that reminder, and yet he did. God was showing his kindness despite their sinfulness. He didn't have to deliver them, and yet he comes to Gideon and he says, the Lord is with you, valiant warrior, leading up to the idea that he's going to be the one to deliver the people of Israel. Just a quick side note on the angel of the Lord. Who is the angel of the Lord? I would argue that the angel of the Lord is Christ appearing before his birth in Bethlehem. And the reason that I say that is something that we're going to see a little bit later, which is in verse 22. He says, Alas, O Lord God, for now I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face, and he has the sense that he's going to die. Usually that's not the reaction that people had when they saw just a regular angel. When I say just a regular angel, it's not like that happens all the time. But in terms of the difference of concern of seeing just an angel, a messenger from God, and seeing Christ himself, there's a sense of, I'm unworthy, I'm in peril of judgment, those sorts of things. So Gideon started out wrongly by questioning God. And then he started making excuses for why he couldn't do what God wanted him to do. Look at verses 14 and 15. The Lord looked at him and said, Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Haven't I sent you? He, Gideon, said to him, the angel of the Lord, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's house. We're not an important family, and I'm the oldest. Shouldn't you be asking my brother? And it says in verse 14, the Lord looked at him and said this, if Jesus appeared to you and said, you need to go do this, is that the response that you would think that we ought to have? No. And yet, this was the response that Gideon had. Verse 14, I think, teaches us that if God calls us to do something, he will enable us to do it. Now, when I say that, I don't mean that it's going to be easy. I don't mean that we can do it in our own strength. But if God came to Gideon and said, I want you to lead the people, God was going to help Gideon to do that. And Gideon didn't seem to be recognizing that. Usually, as I said, looked at this morning, our problem is not lack of knowledge, but an unwillingness to do what we ought to do. He says, go and deliver Israel. I'm sending you. Have I not sent you? And he said, how can I do that? So again, he knew what he was supposed to do, go and lead the people of Israel out of slavery to the Midianites, and he didn't want to do it. A third way connected with doubting God that Gideon demonstrated this problem is he asked for more proof when the path was already clear. Look at verse 16. But the Lord said, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat Midian as one man. So Gideon said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come back to you and bring out my offering and lay it before you. And he said, I will remain until you return. Then Gideon went in and prepared a young goat, and unleavened bread from an ephah of flour. He put the meat in a basket and the broth in a pot and brought them out to him under the oak and presented them. The angel said, Take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. Then the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. 
When Gideon saw that he was the angel of the Lord, he said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Then the Lord said to him, Peace to you, do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built there an altar to the Lord and named it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it is still an Ophrah of the Abiazrites. So Gideon said, I see you're telling me to do this. I want you to, to, to make it really clear that this is what I should do. So what does he say? He says, if, if you really want me to do this, wait here a minute and I'll go get you some food. So that's the first sign he demands of God. If God has made us a promise, if God has said to do something, we shouldn't keep asking for reasons to do it, right? We should just do it. Particularly in this case when it was a face-to-face -face command of God to Gideon. And yet the fascinating thing that we see is that God is merciful even when we are sinful. He was not obligated to accept this meal from Gideon, and yet he treated it as a sacrifice. And it, 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 the smoke and the flame went up before God. There's parallels between this and what the Israelites were commanded to do, the priests on the altar and all those sorts of things with offerings. So he accepted this as an offering, and he didn't destroy Gideon despite all of the conversation here. He said, you do not fear, you shall not die. And so Gideon builds an altar there, and he named the altar. And to us, that seems like a strange thing. You're going to make an altar out of a pile of stones, and you're going to say the name of this altar is... And so many times in the Old Testament, the name of the altar commemorated something about God's person or God's work. Like when they took, the, not the altar per se, but the stones out of the middle of the Jordan River, and they set them up on the bank. What was the point of that? To remind the people who God was. He delivered us through the Jordan River. He saved us from the... Um, uh, he saved us from Egypt. He brought us into the land He promised us. In the same way, this was a reminder to Gideon, and at the time that the... Uh, commentator adds this comment uh, that altar was still standing as a reminder that God shows peace when we certainly don't deserve it why else should we not follow Gideon we shouldn't follow him because he doubted God we shouldn't follow him because he feared the people so I'd say to you don't fear the people why because God is more powerful than any idol look at verse 27 25 now on the same night, the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and a second bull seven years old and pull down the altar of Baal, which belongs to your father, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of this stronghold in an orderly manner and take a second bull and offer a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah, which you shall cut down. Then Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had spoken to him. And because he was too afraid of his father's household and the men of the city to do it by day, he did it at night. What's the point of this? Obeying God means rejecting idolatry and following God the right way. What is Gideon's own father doing? He had at least two idols going on. He had an altar to Baal. Baal was one of these pagan gods that the people of Israel were constantly chasing after worshiping. And uh, so they would have sacrificed to Baal on that altar. And then they would have a stick or a pole or perhaps even just a tree that happened to be growing there and that would be a, a holy or sacred place to Asherah who was a goddess that they thought well if we worship her she'll give us kids she'll give us crops all of these sorts of things 
And what he says here is fascinating. He says, go take your father's cattle, two bulls from his flock. Go tear down the altar where they're making sacrifices to a false god. Go cut down the tree where they're worshiping another false god. Take those three things and worship me because that doesn't belong to those false gods. Come worship me the way that you ought to do. And I think that this reminds us that we have to reject idolatry and follow God the right way, even when, as it was here, that wrong way of life was a family tradition. We say, well, nobody lives like that today. But you may have grown up or had a background where your family didn't follow God. And breaking from that is difficult. And yet God called Gideon to do that. And he did do it grudgingly and fearfully. But he did do it. And I think that reminds us that sometimes we have to do things that our families may not approve of in terms of our following God. We don't do it simply because they'll disapprove of them, because that's a wrong attitude to have, but we do them if something is pleasing to God. I think we see here, too, that we shouldn't fear the people because God can protect you when you're following him. Look at verses 28 and 32. When the men of the city arose early in the morning, the altar of Baal was torn down, and the Asherah which was beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar which had been built. They said to one another, Who did this thing? And when they had searched about and inquired, they said, Gideon the son of Joash did this thing. Then the men of the city said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, for he has torn down the altar of Baal, and indeed he has cut down the Asherah which was beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal? Or will you deliver him? Whoever will plead for him shall be put to death by mourning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because someone has torn down his altar. Therefore on that day he named him Jeroboam, that is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he had torn down his altar. I think we learned two lessons from this section. The first one is, inevitably someone is watching, so don't rely on your schemes to protect you. He thought, oh, if I do it at night, nobody's going to see it. And what, what happens? They inquired and they said, oh, Gideon did it. So he thought nobody was going to notice, and they still noticed. And so what did he need to be relying on to protect him in that circumstance? God's power, not his own scheme to cover up what it was that he was doing. And then I think we need to recognize that God can overcome even an angry mob. Why? Because he's the true God. Here's Gideon's dad saying... And I think it's funny, they say, he knocked down the altar, he cut down the tree. They don't say, and by the way, he killed a couple of your cattle. And Joash doesn't even bring that up. It's fascinating, he sticks up for his son, he says, well, if he can't even protect his own altar, maybe he shouldn't be a god that we're worshiping, right? And this is the contrast that we see over and over again in the Old Testament. Here's the true god, the true god is alive, the true god is powerful, the true God isn't confined to one spot. The true God isn't contained in an altar or in a tree or the God of a specific place. The true God can take care of himself. What happens with the idols whenever they come into contact? The, the Dagon falls down in his own temple and they have to pick him back up. The Philistines come and touch the Ark of the Covenant and they're then plagues come upon them because they didn't show reverence to God. And so we see God's power 
contrasted with that of idols. And I think we can see that God can use even ungodly or unfaithful people to deliver his own people. Gideon's dad wasn't following God as he should because he had the idol, he had the altar, and yet God used him in this respect to speak against this mob and to protect Gideon because God wasn't done with what he wanted Gideon to do. Another example that comes to mind of this would be a, a pagan king like Cyrus, the Persian king who sends the people of Israel back. He wasn't a follower of God, and yet God describes him in another passage in Isaiah, if I remember correctly, as my servant. How can that be? Well, because God is sovereign. He's accomplishing his purpose, even though we may not always recognize it or even be willing participants in it. The third reason we shouldn't follow Gideon's example is because he questioned clear instructions. So I would say, don't question clear instructions. We see this in the last part of the chapter. It says, Then all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the sons of the east assembled themselves, and they crossed over and camped in the valley of Jezreel. So the Spirit of God came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, and the Abiasrites were called together to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, and they were also called together to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they came up to meet them. What do we see in these few verses? God's Spirit is the one who enables victory. Despite an overwhelming threat, all the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the sons of the east assembled themselves and crossed over and camped in the valley. This was a massive army. There's a visible threat just over there, and they're looking at it and they're saying, what are we going to do? God's Spirit was the one that was going to enable victory. How do we know this? Verse 34, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Now, I think it's important here to clarify there's a difference between when the Holy Spirit comes to live within someone who trusts in Jesus today and what it's talking about in verse 34. And what's the difference? The difference is this. In the Old Testament, God, God's Spirit came upon different people in what theologians have called a theocratic anointing that he gave them special power and special ability to do a task that God had set aside for them to do. So, for example, even an ungodly king like Saul, what happens toward the end of his reign? The Spirit of God leaves him and a demon begins to plague and oppress him. Why? Because that anointing is being taken away because God has selected David. David's going to be the next king. David's the one that the Spirit of God is going to enable to lead as king. Uh, it's interesting that a similar kind of thing also happened for the craftsmen who built the temple, that there was the Spirit of God working in and through them so that the temple was the way that God wanted it to be. And I think we would also see a parallel here when you see uh, David in either Psalm 32 or 51. He says, don't take your spirit from me. I think David had an awareness that God's spirit was helping him to rule as king, and he didn't want God to take that away from him. I don't think that he was saying in that passage, I'm going to be forever lost from your sight. He's saying, God, I've majorly sinned against you. Let me continue to be king. Let your spirit continue to guide me so that I can rule well. The spirit, and this is not from the passage, but I think it ties to what we know from other passages in the scripture, the spirit enables spiritual victory for us today, even as he enabled physical victory for Gideon and for Israel. And so we need to rely on his power just as much as Gideon did. Now, I'm not saying that's what's in this passage. I want to be clear. 
Because there's a lot of people who take this passage and say, well, there's just a, we're just going to jump right to what the New Testament says. But uh, there are parallels in that the same Spirit who gives victory to the people of Israel in this passage is the same Spirit who helps us today. Why should we not question clear instructions? Because God's Spirit can give victory, and God's the one who is giving the instructions, because questioning God's clear command dishonors God. Look at verses 36 to 40. Then Gideon said to God, If you will deliver Israel through me, as you have spoken, behold, I will put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only, and it is dry on all the ground, then I will know you will deliver Israel through me, as you have spoken. And it was so. When he arose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he drained the dew from the fleece, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not let your anger burn against me, that I may speak once more. Please let me make a test once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, and let there be dew on all the ground. God did so that night, for it was dry only on the fleece, and dew was on all the ground. So what is a fleece? Verse 37, literally speaking, the normal meaning of it is that a fleece is when you uh, shear a sheep and the wool, the Think of uh, something like a cat or a dog. They have fur. What's on the sheep is its wool. Those of you who have more experience with farming than I do could describe it better. My dad did. I've never experienced it firsthand. Uh, my only experience with a sheep was when we did a living nativity kind of thing, and I realized that all these pictures you see of sheep, that they're all fluffy and white and beautiful, they get all sorts of sticks and mud and stuff caught in their, in their wool. So you have to wash it, you have to clean it, you have to do a lot of things with it between getting it off the sheep and making it into a suit, for example. Moving back from that little aside. What is Gideon doing? He's saying, God, I'm going to put this outside. What happens in the morning if you go outside and you touch the grass? It's wet, right? That's the dew. It happens in the morning. Gideon's saying, let me put it out there and let the ground around it be dry and let the fleece be full of the dew. And God did that. And he said, well, just in case I misinterpreted that, let's do it the other way. Let the fleece be dry and the ground be wet. And this is also significant because there's been a few times when I've left something sitting outside like a, a sheet of glass or something like that, and you pick it up and there's all this dew on the bottom of it. And so again... The fact that it didn't do what you would expect it to do was a sign that God intervened in this circumstance. But here's the question for us. Did that really honor God for Gideon to say, all right, let me check. Okay, let me check again. This is at least the third time that he said, God, the fact that you've said to do this isn't really enough for me. I want you to keep sort of reassuring me and, 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 and making me confident that this is really what you want me to do. I think we need to make one final point about Gideon's life before we move on from him to some application, and that's this. Grudging obedience doesn't undo past disobedience. Look at chapter 7 and verse 1. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and camped beside the spring of Herod, and the camp of Midian was on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. You go through that whole chapter and God gives them victory. But here's the problem. Hesitating to do God's will is going to continue until you break that habit. Why do I say that? Because once again in the middle of chapter 7, Gideon's still not confident if he should go down 
and attack the Midianites. And God says, go listen to the camp, and there's going to be this dream, and that will give you confidence yet again that I'm going to give you the victory. So hesitating to obey God is going to keep happening until we break that habit. And going your own way as a characteristic of your life is going to lead to further sin and worse consequences. What happened in Gideon's life? You read on to chapter 8, he takes vengeance. He tortures and he murders people in a couple of cities because they wouldn't give him food and water when he's chasing the Midianites. He commits idolatry. He sets up this thing and causes the people of Israel to not precisely worship it, but worship God in connection with it. And God had said, don't do that. Don't make idols. Don't make images. He sinned further by being immoral. He sinned further by encouraging other people to follow after his example. And so, of all the people that we should pick as an example of how to figure out what pleases God, why this guy? Because you see over and over again in this chapter how he questions God, he doubts God, he doesn't want to obey the clear commands that God has given him, he keeps making excuses for why he shouldn't do it. So stepping back, that's the bad example. That's why we shouldn't follow his pattern for figuring out what God wants us to do. What should we do? And I'd say it's, it's fairly straightforward. How do you figure out God's will? You read the Bible. And when I say read the Bible, I don't mean that you take the Bible and you open it up and you point to a verse and say, okay, that's what God wants me to do. I just put my finger on Jeremiah 27, 18. But if they are prophets, let them entreat the Lord of hosts that the vessels which are left in the house of the Lord may not go to Babylon. That's not going to help me have guidance. But taking specific commands of Scripture, specific verses like the one we looked at this morning, this is God's will, your sanctification. So what does God want me to do? He wants me to be holy. He wants me to be loving. That guides us, generally speaking, in the way that we're supposed to live. And then we say sometimes, well, but it doesn't say anything about whether or not I should buy this car or, or this house or take this job or go on this vacation. How do I know what I should do in those cases? My answer would be, even if it doesn't say specifically, chapter and verse, Bob, go take a trip to Mexico. Jonathan, go buy that Ferrari. Um, Paul, I want you to take a job fishing in Alaska. I'm using, what's that? I'm out You're out of here. All right. Even if it doesn't say those sorts of things, it does give us principles. For example, should I buy that specific car? Well, what are other biblical principles that would sort of factor into that decision? Can I care for my family if I do this and buy that car? Can I still fulfill that responsibility? Because God says I have to do that. He says I don't have to have this thing. Or, will buying this and the work to pay for it keep me from being in church? Or, am I motivated by pride? I really want that car because I want to see people drive in me driving it down the street, and I want them to look at me and think that I'm a great person. Any one of these things could be a sufficient reason not to do that. Now, if you say, I can afford it, 
and it's not going to keep me from church trying to pay for it, and I'm not buying it because of some uh, measure of pride. You know, uh, just as an example, I have an old yellow truck, and, uh, you know, clearly my motive is not pride if I have an old rusty Dodge, you know, driving it down the road. My wife doesn't want to ride in it with me, so... How do we make these decisions? By looking at biblical principles. And it depends on your circumstance what the principles are that apply to your situation. And so that puts a little bit of the uh, responsibility on us to, to think about those things, which means that we have to know God's Word and we have to be meditating on it so that we sort of have the parameters to filter our decisions through. But what about that question where there's two good options? Is it okay to like blue more than green? What's that? Yeah, I would agree with you. Blue, blue is obviously better than green. But some choices aren't significant. The specific color in this case is not a moral decision. But what about if you take something even more significant and potentially life-changing, like who you marry. There's a sense in which, as long as that person is a believer, it does not matter who you marry, but once you've married them, there are all of these responsibilities and obligations connected with it that God calls you to follow. And the reason that I say that is there are some people that, that, that picture God's will like walking a tightrope. And if you fall off, you're done for. But that's not the, script, the picture that the Bible paints for us. The picture is you make wise decisions. Sometimes you make foolish decisions. The response to that is not to say, I've missed God's path for my life. Life is done. The response to that is say, God, forgive me. Help me to start living for you again and making wise decisions from this point forward. And so as we look at these things, we have to say, what are the clear principles of Scripture, the clear statements of Scripture? What are the principles of Scripture? What are the legitimate options between which I can make a choice according to preference and desire? And even in that, the thing that starts to govern us is, are my desires aligned with God's desires? Do I have a habit of godly desires? Do I have a habit of selfish desires? And the extent to which we answer those questions different ways is going to affect whether we're consistently making choices that honor God. So how don't we find God's will? We don't find God's will by testing God. That one I think we can clearly rule out as being wrong. It was wrong when Gideon did it. It's wrong for us to do it. It was bad advice for the guy speaking at the convention that I went to to recommend it. What about circumstances? And this is what I was saying at the beginning. We start with the biblical principles, but then we also look at circumstances. In this sense, maybe I'm convinced that God wants me to go be a missionary to a certain country. And then I find out there's some sort of travel restriction related to some health condition that I have, and I can't go to that place. What does that circumstance tell me? It tells me less than I think it might. It doesn't mean God doesn't want me to be a missionary. It doesn't mean God wants me to never serve him. It simply means this. God doesn't want me to go to that place at that time. 
And so that's the danger with circumstances. When we have scripture, it's very clear what it means. When we have circumstances, we can read all kinds of meanings into them. So I think we should consider them because it does no good for us to beat our head against the wall if the opportunity isn't there. But we have to start with, does God want me to do this in the first place? What about the one about a feeling of peace? I think that there is a sense in which God gives us assurance that decisions are wise decisions if we approach it in terms of biblical principles, seeking godly counsel, praying to God, not necessarily in that order, but but all of those things together. I think the assurance generally follows after that. But what if you find yourself in a situation where you don't have that assurance? Does that mean that you made the wrong decision? Sometimes it just means that life is overwhelming. Sometimes it just means that it's going to take time for you to see the long-term benefits of that result. And what about the fourth one, which I will turn back here and see what it was. What about the one about watching results? Again, that shouldn't be where we start, because a lot of times what works isn't necessarily what pleases God. That being said, if we're trying to be effective with the resources, whether it's time or money or energy or whatever that God has given to us, I think at least at some point we need to ask, not so much does God want me to do this, but in what way is the best way for me to approach this? Just as an example, when it comes to something with the church. Uh, The church that we came from had a retirement facility right next door. If we said, we want to reach the folks at the retirement facility, so we're going to do a Summer Olympics event and, and have foot races and shot put throw and all that sort of thing, is that the most effective thing to do? We're going to spend a lot of money doing it. They never did that, and I, so it's, I'm not criticizing something. I'm just saying, would that be the most effective, the wisest thing to do? No, but if we're convinced that we need to reach people with the gospel, we should try different things, and if they don't work, we should allow the possibility that maybe we didn't do it as well as we could have, or say, you know what, let's try something different. And so that's where I think evaluating results comes in. Again, it follows, should we do this in the first place? Biblical principles, what pleases God? But I do think we have to look at some of these things to follow. So, don't follow Gideon. Follow what God says, and pray that he will give us wisdom. Because, as it says in James, God is generous with wisdom. We all need it, and if we ask him, then he will provide us with it. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at these truths together, we often encounter situations where we don't know what to do. And sometimes the things that we don't know what to do about are significant for the course of our lives. The jobs that we take, Uh, the person that we marry, the uh, places that we go. Lord, we recognize that to a certain extent, our making the right choices in the big things is a following up of us making right choices in a lot of smaller things every day. Lord, we know that you have offered wisdom, that you give generously, that you are a kind God. You're not waiting for us to fall off and make a mistake, and say, I told you so. Rather, you want us to follow you. 
you want us to obey. You are patient with even a man like Gideon. Lord, help us not to be like Gideon, but Lord, we thank you that you are patient even when we're that way. And Lord, I pray that you would help us all to make wise decisions about things even going on right now or to come in the next few months and years. Lord, I just pray that we would honor you, that we would seek your will in a way that reflects your character and your goodness and what you want to accomplish in our lives. Lord, we know that we can't do this apart from you, and so it starts with trust in your Son. And so, Lord, I pray that we would all be trusting him tonight. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.